up hundreds of years after the apostles. In fact, a lot of the books that should have been in there didn't ever were even included. They talk about councils where decisions were made and books were chosen and other ones were left out. They say that the loudest talker that won the debate, and that's why you have the books that you have, they'll say that there's these other ones that are floating around, like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, that should have been in there, and they say that there's ones in your Bibles that shouldn't even be there at all. They'll say, how did on earth did Second Peter make it in there? It wasn't even written by Peter. And they'll throw this junk out in the air, hoping that it kind of does something in confusion, folks. And so what we're going to do today is we're actually going to cut through that garbage. We're going to look at history. We're going to look at the case for the canon. We're going to look at what does the evidence say. And I believe that we can have great confidence in the 27 books that were handed down to us as Scripture, on par with the Old Testament, on par with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Genesis. All right, so that's what the plan is today. It's a little bit ambitious. I hope you guys have booked a couple hours for church because that's what it's going to take. So to start off, it, I want to ask the question, have you guys thought about this? Have you ever thought, like, if someone asked you, um, why these books? Like, how do you know these 27 books? Just think for a sec, what would you say? I mean, you, you take any good Bible, you flip to the beginning, the table of contents, and there's these 27 what would you answer? Where did that come from? Who made that decision? When? Well, one thing that, that liberal theologians would like to say, they would like to have a claim that early on, one, the idea of canon wasn't there, and two, that there was great debate on all the books. But the truth is, when we look, there was a consistent core of books from the start. In fact, 22 out of 27 New Testament books, everybody agreed on from the start. There was no debate about Romans ever. There was no debate about the four Gospels ever. That was consistent from the start. Now, it's true, the smaller books, mostly the smaller books, on the edge of the canon took a little while. There was some, had to be some discussion. There had to be some debate on that. But when you think about that, I mean, that's the same thing we see today, right? The smaller books often get overlooked. When was the last time you heard a sermon on Philemon? Right? They, they just tend to be a little bit on the periphery, and it's the big set of books that we tend to give more time to. But from the start, in the 100s, so right, the Gospel of John closes the canon in about the year 90, and right away in the 100s, 22 out of 27 New Testament books are solid core recognized from the start. There was never a council ever that decided what books were going to be in the New Testament. And there's a whole lot of myths on the internet. If you were to go on YouTube, usually the one you're going to hear is the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. They'll say Constantine becomes a Christian and he gathers the, the leaders of the Christianity together and they voted. And they voted in the four Gospels and they voted in the rest of the New Testament. That's not true. That's actually total legend, total myth. The Council of Nicaea was super awesome. Uh, God willing, I, I'd like to preach a sermon on it one day. Uh, everybody was there. Santa Claus was there. St. Nick was there. It was foundational. But the topic, the topic that gathered the leaders of the world, where Christianity had just been legal about a decade before, gathered them together to talk about one particular issue. Is Jesus Christ God? in the flesh or not God. That was what was on the table. And then they talked about some other smaller stuff like 
um, house, housekeeping rules. Uh, should bishops be allowed to have a woman living in their house that's not their wife or mother or sister? Uh, what do we do about the, the Christians that backslid during the days of persecution when Christianity was legal? Do we let them back in? Do we let, not let them back in? There's a lot of things like that, but there was no discussion about the canon of Scripture. So main point there, no council ever came together to decide what books were going to be in the Bible. The people of God recognized which books were Scripture in the same way that in the Old Testament, the people of God recognized which books were God-breathed in contrast to which ones weren't. All right, so to start this off, we're going to go through some history here. And I want to tell you about this guy. So Athanasius, th this is my guy. This guy at uh, the Council of Nicaea. I'm just going to adjust this a little bit. Maybe I'll pull it up. So at, at the Council of Nicaea, uh, he, he, he's a hero, especially afterwards. There was one point where uh, one theologian said that the world woke up and realized that they did not believe that Jesus Christ was God. And it was like he was the last guy. He was exiled five times, uh, hiding out in, in rural Egypt with monks, writing and writing, Jesus Christ is God, and sending his letters out saying, we believe it because John taught it, because the scriptures taught it. There was a saying in Latin, Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. This guy is a hero. I love this picture just because uh, he looks tough. It looks like he just hit the gym. He's got the scriptures. He's ready for a fight. He's going to take on the heretics. Uh, it actually looks nothing like the real Athanasius. Uh, this is in Denmark. Uh, Athanasius was from Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, his nickname was the, the Black Dwarf. He was short and dark-skinned, uh, but uh, he looks like a Dane there, and uh, kind of cool. And Athanasius tells us this. So this is a letter he wrote in 367 uh, to a church at Easter to encourage them, and this is what he says. Again, it is not tedious to speak of the books of the New Testament. These are the four Gospels, according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Afterward, the Acts of the Apostles and the Epistles called Catholic, there are seven. James, one of Peter, uh, sorry, of Peter there are two. Of John there are three, think first, second, third, John. After these, one of Jude. In addition, there are 14 Epistles of Paul. Now, we, we recognize 13 Epistles of Paul, but the book of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote it other than God. And, uh, but he recognized that or believed that Hebrews was written by Paul. So that's where he gets 14 written in this order. The first, to the Romans, then two to the Corinthians, after these, to the Galatians. Is this sounding familiar? Next to the Ephesians, then to the Philippians, then to the Colossians, and after these, two to the Thessalonians, and that to the Hebrews, and again, two to the Timothy, one to Titus, and lastly, that to Philemon, and besides, the revelation of John. So we get the exact list already very early, 367 AD, the exact list of the books of the New Testament. And then look what he says at the end of this. These are fountains of salvation. What a wonderful way to refer to the books of the New Testament. Fountains of salvation. That they who thirst may be satisfied with the living words they contain. The living words they contain. In these alone is proclaimed the doctrine of godliness. Let no man add to these Neither let him take out from these. I love it. He sounds like a Reformed Baptist preacher from the 1800s. And this is 367. So let no man add to these. 
neither let him take out from these. All right, so we got a firm canon established, recognized already in 367. But if we back up more than a century, we get this other man named Origen or Rigen. He tells us in a commentary on Genesis and in a commentary he's writing on Joshua, um, as a byproduct, we get this really neat evidence of the year 250 AD. This is what he writes. Isaac, therefore, digs also new wells. Nay, rather, Isaac's servants dig them. Isaac's servants are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. His servants are Peter, James, Jude, and the Apostle Paul is his servant. These all dig the wells of the New Testament. So you see, that is actually every author of the New Testament already there. There's none missing, and very important here, there's none extra. It would be a little bit weird if there was another name in there. We'd be saying, well, who's that guy? Where did that come from? That's not there. And he goes on to say down below, Matthew first sounded his priestly trumpet in his gospel. Mark also, Luke and John each played their own priestly trumpet. Even Peter cries out with trumpets in two of his epistles, First and Second Peter. Also, James and Jude, in addition, John also sounds the trumpet through his epistles, and Luke, as he describes Acts of the Apostles. And I love how he puts this one now. Picture who he's talking about. And now, that last one comes, the one who said, I think God displays us apostles last. You just picture that, Paul. And in 14 of his epistles, so he takes the same position as, as uh, Athanasius, thundering with trumpets, he casts down the walls of Jericho and all the devices of idolatry and dogmas of philosophers all the way to the foundations. So you see, 100 years before Athanasius, we've already got the books of the New Testament locked down. And notice the way that these guys are talking about them. They're not saying, just in case you don't know, or guys, I had a revelation from God, these are the books of Holy Scripture. They're talking about it in sort of a matter-of-fact way, as though that their audience are aware of what they're saying, and they're talking about it in the same way you and I would talk about it today, as if it's already there. It's already in the background. It's already recognized, and they're stating a fact. These are the authors. These are the books. All right, so 250 A.D. Let's back up some more. So Irenaeus. Irenaeus was trained, discipled, mentored by Polycarp. Polycarp was mentored by John, by the Apostle John. So we're talking super close to the original apostles when we hear from Irenaeus. He is basically Apostle John's spiritual grandson. Like this is very, very close. And Irenaeus, writing in 180 now, so the, the century, right after the century that had Jesus and the apostles, he writes this, Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect, while Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome and laying the foundations of the church. After their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. So some neat trivia, some neat details we're getting here that, you know, when you read Mark, these are kind of like the memoirs of Peter, that in his life and his, his uh, discipleship with the Apostle Peter, the things he's hearing, he's putting down in, on pages, becomes the Gospel of Mark. Luke, also the companion of Paul, recorded in a book the Gospel preached by him. Afterward, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also had leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a Gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. Now, this is really neat. After this, he is so convinced 
that when it comes to the Gospels, that it is these four that we know, no others, no less, that he's seen the number four everywhere. He says, it is not possible that the Gospels can be either more or fewer in number than they are. For since there are four zones in the world in which we live, right, north, west, south, and east, since there are four zones in the world in which we live, and four principal winds, he goes down to say it is fitting that she, the church, should have four pillars, breathing out immortality on every side and vivifying the men afresh. So he's saying, locked even into creation itself, you see the number four, how fitting, as we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Neat way to, to, to talk about it. And then he goes on to say, for that according to John, and this is a really cool continuity, just in case somebody somewhere would have a ridiculous theory and say, you know, the, the Gospel of John in your Bible is not actually the Gospel of John they had back then. Just in case someone tried to do that, he gives us this. He says, for that according to John, thus declaring, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Does that sound familiar? He gives us the very first verse of each Gospel. Uh, but according to that of Luke, started with Zacharias, or Zechariah the priest, John the Baptist's dad, offering sacrifice to God. And then Matthew again, saying the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Mark, on the other hand, commences with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as is written in the prophet Isaiah. So notice the direct continuity between the gospels that are in your Bible and exactly what he was speaking of in the year 180 incredibly, incredibly recent and close to the date of the writing of the originals, the autograph. Now, can we back up further? In the year 172, a man named Tatian, who was discipled by Justin Martyr, he decided, he had this neat idea. He says, I'm going to take the four Gospels, and I'm going to harmonize them. I'm going to make one copy. So he does this. He takes the Gospel of John as a starting base, and then he inserts and fits in a chronological order chunks and pieces of Matthew, Mark, and Luke to have one package that he can go and say the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the interesting thing we get from that is what did he use? He used Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why didn't he put in the gospel of Thomas? Or why didn't he put in the gospel of Mary Magdalene? If, if they were available, if they really were scripture, why did he leave those out? For him, the four gospels are the ones that you have in your Bible. So very significant in year 172 back up in the year 150 to his mentor, the one he would have learned the, who the Gospels are from, Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr, he calls the Gospels the memoirs of the Apostle. He says a lot about what those books are. If we back up even further into the year 125, we've got a, name, a guy named Papias. Papias, he's the Bishop of Hierapolis, which is in Turkey, right close to Colossae. And Papias tells us about the Gospels. He talks about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he says he knows John. In fact, he says he gets his information from John, and he calls him the elder. And we know from our Bibles who that elder is. Second John and Third John, first verse, John the Apostle refers to himself as the elder. And then a little bit later on, Arrhenius, who we talked about before, he calls Papias the hearer of John and the friend of Polycarp. So we've got Papias sitting with the man who said on the cross when he's dying, when he's being executed, look after my mom. 
that man who walked with the king with Messiah for three years, Papias got to sit with him, talk to him, listen to him. And his friend is Polycarp, who got to do the same thing. This guy, speaking of these Gospels, it's a direct continuity between then and what you have in your Bibles today. Now let's back up even further to the year 64 AD. So we're going to look at what Peter says, and we're going to look at what Paul says. So in your Bibles, if you're not there yet, flip over to 2 Peter 3.16. So Peter says something very interesting in this text here. So 2 Peter 3.16, actually backing up a little bit to verse 15. Peter says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. And then look at verse 16 as he does in all his letters, plural. If you mark up your Bible, it's really nice to circle the S on letters and even underline the word all, as Paul does in all his letters. So we're seeing already at this stage in, in approximately 64 AD, Peter is saying there is a collection of letters that belong to Paul that are already in circulation that people are already aware of, that Peter can refer to them. And what does he go on to say? When he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which, yeah, if you've read Romans, sure, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. That word other is mind-blowing. What he's saying here, and now imagine if he said it this way, as they do, they, they, they twist and wreck Paul's letters as they do the Bible. No big deal, right? All kinds of heretics can wreck things as other people can wreck the Bible. But what he says is, as they do the rest of the Bible, the other scriptures, Peter is saying that Paul writes scripture. That's massive, massive, massive. And if Peter... Right, Jesus is number two. If he can say that Paul writes scripture, and if it's based on the fact that Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ, well, what does that say about Peter and his letters? Peter writes scripture. Paul writes scripture. And let's check out now something that Paul writes. So flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 5. First Timothy chapter 5. Okay, looking at starting in verse 17, we're going to do 17 and 18. It says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And now verse 18, this is significant here. For the scripture says, right? For the Bible says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So where is that? He's quoting directly from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. Right? A direct quote, not an allusion to the Old Testament, a direct quote. The scripture says, Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, but it's not finished. And it says, and the laborer deserves 
his wages. So where is that? What, where in the Old Testament is the laborer deserves his wages? Well, there's actually only one place in this planet that you will find that phrase in that word, in that order, especially in the Greek, and that is Luke chapter 10, verse 7. Paul is quoting the book of Luke, which tells us that the gospel of Luke was already in circulation at the time of the writing of 1 Timothy, already recognized as scripture, that Paul is not doing anything controversial here where he says, as the scripture says, and he quotes Old Testament, and he quotes Luke as if they're on par. If I did that this morning, and I compared Old Testament to New Testament, none of you would throw rocks at me, right? Because it's established, we understand that. That was happening already here in 64 AD. So super early at the time of the writing. So major significance. And what people will often say is that um, as the writers of scripture are, are writing, that at first they, they had no idea that they were actually writing Bible. And the people who received the text never thought it was actually a Bible. That came way later on, councils did that. Well, let's look at a couple things that I, I believe just knocked that right out. So turn to Second Thess Second Thessalonians chapter two. So just a couple books or, or a couple pages to the left. Second Thessalonians chapter two. And look at chapter two, verse fifteen. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So notice as as this letter is written, as the letters of Paul go out to the church, he's saying, stand firm and hold to what you've been taught by us, the traditions you've been taught by us apostles, either by spoken word, what you heard from us, or by our letter. So there's an authority that's infused into the, the letters that they left. And look at the following chapter, chapter 3. In verse 13, 14, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say, where, in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. So look at the authority built into the letter already. That if in Second Thessalonians is read, and if anybody in the body of Christ at that time says, I'm not going to do that. You know, Paul says that, not for me. He's actually saying, take note of them that they may be ashamed. So Paul is writing with a level of authority, like a prophet of the Old Testament. Uh, to, to say that he didn't know what he was doing and that he was writing scripture, uh, it's a stretch when the text says what it does here. And last one, flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I like This is a mic drop verse. I won't drop this one, but I'm tempted to after I read this. Chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37. So 1 Corinthians 14, 37 to 38, Paul says this. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. 
if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Right? I'll say that again. Paul is saying that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. The authority that he's speaking of right now is saying, Yahweh, the one true God, he is writing through me his commands. And if you do not recognize this, he says, you will not be recognized. Now, you, when Isaiah would preach, you could not say, Isaiah, I, don't, I just don't agree with you. No, you, do, you have your thing, I have my thing. That's Isaiah. He's the mouthpiece of God. Paul, in the New Testament, is now on this par. This is what he's claiming. This is intense. And so Michael Kruger, a theologian really good in the canon, this is what he has to say about this text. He says that the scriptures were infused with authority from the start. No later decisions by the church was necessary. They were scripture from the outset, a divinely inspired book that God had given to his church. So how do we recognize what is God-breathed and what is not? Because there's a lot of competition out there. There's a lot of things floating. Well, there are three attributes that when we look at the 66 books of Scripture, these three things are there in all of them. And we can also say that there is no other book in this world that has all these three things except for the 66 books of Scripture. So what are they? So first of all, apostolic origins. This means that that book is either written by an apostle or by somebody who is in close fellowship with the apostle. He's in the apostolic orbit and is conserving, is passing on apostolic teaching. Right. So an example of an apostle writing, I mean, that, that would be Matthew, that would be John. An example of somebody who is in close fellowship with and is passing on apostolic teaching, that would be Luke, right, who is a companion and traveling with, with Paul and interviewing the eyewitnesses and compiling his gospel to give it out. That would be the book of Hebrews, where the last chapter, the, the names that he mentions, we realize he's in the inner circle. He's talking about Timothy, who's just been released from prison. And the content of Hebrews, you see the apostolic teaching that is consistent with the rest of the scripture is being passed on. So the apostolic origins of the text or the prophetic, uh, prophet capital P in the Old Testament, though that is the necessity of, um, one of the necessities of the scriptures being written. The second one is divine qualities. And I break that down to unity and continuity. continuity. Scripture is not really 66 books, or, or, or I should say, sorry, it's 66 books, but it's really how many stories? It's not really 66 stories, it's one story. It's a story of God who would come for us in our sin, who would bring a rescuer, who would die in our place, take our sin on him, give his righteousness to us, that we could escape that default setting of hell and go to heaven forever if we repent of our sins and give our lives to Jesus Christ. Full, blameless, in his sight, if we put our junk on him and receive that forgiveness. So that story, that unity and continuity, does that book match and flow with the rest of scripture that has been given before it? That's a major one to look at. And the last one, corporate reception. Have the people of God recognized that text as the word of God? 
If they haven't, super suspicious. If they have, odds are it's probably in our Bible right now. Now, there are some books that could match one of these or two of these, but if they don't match all three, they don't make the cut. They're not in the canon. So I want to use these three things. And I, I hope that these three things, if, if, you, if you miss or take nothing else from today, please grab these three things, write them in your Bible, think about them often. You, let these three things be what you talk about when you talk about the canon of Scripture. Because these allow you to test anything and everything, any claim that ever comes. Now, as an example, we're going to test two things. We're going to test the Apocrypha, and we're going to test the Pseudepigrapha. So the Apocrypha. Has anybody ever considered, what, what is that? Have you heard of the Apocrypha before? So the Apocrypha are Jewish writings written mostly in a historical nature, and they take place in the period of time between Malachi and Matthew. In those 400 years in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, God was not sending prophets anymore. They call it the years of silence, when God's people were still active, they were still living, they still had challenges, and yet there, there's no Zechariah showing up. There's no Haggai. There's no Ezekiel. God had spoken many times in the past, and it's like it's dried up. And they're wondering when, how. There's all these promises that God will act in a great way, that one day God will come on the clouds of heaven and rescue them all, but he's just not doing it. And 100 years go by, 200 years, 300 years, nothing is happening. And during that time, there is a book that's super exciting. It's First Maccabees. It uh, it reads like First and Second Kings. It's full of battles. There is um, elephants, um, battle elephants. One one amazing scene. One guy he sees an elephant and is dressed up more ornate than the rest, and he realizes it's a general on top. And he runs and he plunges a sword up underneath the elephant, which collapses on him. But he, you know, kind of takes takes it out, and it's it's a real good read. And uh, where do the Pharisees come from, right? Like you finish the Old Testament, there's no Pharisees, and then suddenly you start the New Testament, and there's these guys walking around with the Bible, and they know it really well, and they're constantly challenging Jesus. Where do they come from? They weren't there in Nehemiah. They weren't there in Ezra. Well, they come from the days of the Maccabees, when the Greeks want to wipe out the Jews, and they say, you circumcised your kid, we'll kill you. You celebrate the Shabbat, the Sabbath, we'll kill you. You do anything about that temple in a way that's not to all the gods, we will take you out. And in that day, the Maccabees, these brothers, in a Braveheart style kind of thing, move the way through Israel, and it's, it's hardcore. It's, it's, it's the sword. And they say, are you for the God of Israel or are you for the rest? And the wrong answer will not work out good for you. And they succeed in taking back the land of Israel. They beat the Greeks back. And there's these interesting things that happen in it where these three statements are made by the Maccabees. All right, so the first one I'm going to read to you. Listen if something stands out here. You can follow if you want or you can listen. Does this sound odd, this last statement here? All right. They, the priests, cleansed the temple sanctuary, and the stones that had been defiled were carried away to an unclean place. All right, so the Greeks had, I, I believe that they had sacrificed a pig on the altar, and um, so right now they're like, this altar is toast, right? These stones, we can't do anything. They're, they're unclean. They don't fit Torah. They discussed what should be done about the altar of the burnt offering, for it had been defiled. Someone suggested that it be torn down so it would not become a lasting shame to them 
for the Gentiles had defiled it. So they pulled down the altar and put the stones in a suitable place on the temple hill until a prophet could come someday and tell them what to do with them. So, so cool. Back in the day, they'd be like, I don't know, go ask Zechariah. Zechariah, what do we do? And Oh, thus says the Lord, and they would get guidance. Right now, they're saying, that's not the case. That's not today. Well, put them over there. God will send a prophet one day. He'll tell us what to do. The second instance, after the death of Judas, the ungodly came out of hiding throughout Israel, and evildoers reappeared. Right, So the hero's dead. The bad guys are coming out. There's nobody to hold them back. And in those days, there was a very severe famine. There's not enough food. It was a bad time. And the country eventually sided with the ungodly. Right? Corruption at all levels is bad. It's looking like the book of Judges. And then the, this statement, there had not been such distress in Israel since the day the last prophet was seen in Israel. That's like a Hollywood movie, right? The last prophet. Remember that day? when that last prophet died, and we haven't seen another one since. There's a noticeable difference in this era of the Maccabees than there was before. And lastly, the people of Israel made an inscription on bronze tablets and mounted them on pillars, and it read this, The Jews and their priests have decided that Simon should remain their leader and high priest until a true prophet should arise. Right? So they're recognizing there is no prophet, but they have hope that one day there will be another one again because the Old Testament says there would be 400 years later, or actually 160 years after this, there's a man crying out in the wilderness, baptizing people in the water, who says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God did this on purpose. It was strategic so that things would stand out when he would move again in the New Testament. So why to Catholic people or the Catholic Church, why is Maccabees or the Apocrypha, which includes a whole bunch of others, Tobit, Sirach, uh, Bell and the Dragon, uh, Ecclesiasticus, a whole bunch of these, why are they the Bible? So the Jewish people have not claimed that they're scripture. In fact, for the sake of time, I was going to read to you Josephus. Josephus has this really cool quote where he, say, he talks about the Bible. He talks about Moses and he talks about the scriptures and he says, we will die for these words. And then he says, yes, it's true that after the Old Testament closes, our history, the Jewish people's history, has been recorded, but it was not accepted in the same way as the Old Testament because the succession of the prophets was broken. So they recognize, the Jewish people recognize, this is interesting, this is history, but this is not God-breathed, this is not God's word. It does not belong in the Bible. So again, why, though, is it in the Bible? So what happened, super brief, uh, Council of Trent, 1546, the Catholic Church come together and they say, what are we going to do about this Reformation? Right? We got our former brothers, these Catholic priests, they're saying that we're teaching a whole bunch of stuff that is not in the Bible. And they're saying that we're taking these ideas from the apocryphal books and we're treating it like it's the Bible. What do we do about that? And I like to picture there's a guy in the back and he's like, I got an idea. And they're like, yeah, you. I go, let's make them Bible. And then we got it from the Bible and everything's okay. And they're like, that's a good idea. And they promoted that guy and they put it in the Bible. So 1,546 years after the birth of Christ, although the Jewish people never recognized it as a Bible, although the early church and the apostles never recognized it as a Bible, the Apocrypha became scripture for the Catholic Church. 
So that's why it's in there. That's why they have extra books attached to the Old Testament. And that's why us as evangelical Christians say, no, like they weren't then. They never have been. Interesting documents, but they are not the Word of God. They're not God-breathed. Now, there's this other category. Uh, we were in Canmore the other day. We went to a bookstore there, and I always like to, it, it bothers me when I do because it's not good books in the Christian section, but I thought, I'll give it a check. And I looked at the Christian book section, and I found books, like I thought, for this, what, that talk about the secret gospel of Thomas or the gospel of the 12 patriarchs. And it talks about it like this, like, oh, did you not know about this? And then if you as a Christian say, no, I don't, I don't know about the gospel of Thomas. I haven't read that. They'll be like, oh, you're missing out. You know, you've got those four boring books. If only you knew about this other one, you should order it on Amazon. It's available. And it's called the pseudepigrapha. And pseudepigrapha means false names or pen names or forgeries. These are books that are dated the year 200s, the year 300s, the year 400s, way after the people who have uh, who have their name on it uh, are dead, and the and the people in in their desire to circulate these books, these fake news kind of things, put the names of these big deal guys like like Thomas. He's, he's a huge deal, but he did not write the Gospel of Thomas. Now, uh, these lost books of the Bible. I, I like one uh, one guy I like to listen to. He say, he called it this. Another way of calling them the lost books of the Bible, it really should be called the known lies of the second and third century that were discarded by those who had access to the eyewitness accounts of Jesus. Right? Our brothers and sisters at, in the era that these books started circulating looked at them and said, that's junk. That's, that, and in the, the way it works, really, if I write a book today and I say George Washington and I make a whole bunch of lies, and I try and pass it around to you and to Banff, and everyone goes, Nick Cotter wrote that book. That's junk. That's not. That's a tabloid, and it gets forgotten about, and it ends up up on a bookshelf. And then 300 years later, somebody finds it and go, Oh my gosh, the the true story of George Washington. I didn't know this. Did you know this? And it goes viral, and people totally forget that no, Nick Cotter wrote it like two, three hundred years ago. Like that's what these books are. Now. Those three things, remember those three things we can apply to find out, is this scripture or not? So the Gospel of Thomas, follow me with this. Does this sound to you like this has the unity and continuity of the rest of the recognized scriptures? So this is the last scene of the Gospel of Thomas. Simon Peter said to them, Mary should leave us, for females are not worthy of life. Jesus said, uh, see... I am going to attract her to make her male so that she too might become a living spirit that resembles you males. For every female that makes itself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. That is the Gospel of Thomas. So the best thing you can ever do for anybody anywhere that ever says, and you're probably going to hear this now, this, have you read the Gospel of Thomas? Say, can I read you a quote? and then read that, and then find out if they actually want to read the rest of it. So obviously this is junk. This is class A junk. And it was recognized as such right away. So was it written by an apostle? No. Dated two, three hundred years after Christ. It doesn't pass the first test. Was, does it have the unity and continuity of the rest of the scriptures? Not even close. This is crazy. And third, corporate reception. Did the people of God recognize it as scripture and receive it as such? 
No, they, they forgot about it. They pushed it aside and it disappeared until recent days. All right, so Gospel of Thomas, and you can apply this to all of Pseudepigrapha, they fail all three tests. Coming back to Maccabees, does it pass the first test of uh, written by an apostle? No, no, it fails. Does it pass the second test of unity and continuity of the Bible? I would actually argue, yes, it actually does flow, but big deal, doesn't matter. All three have to be passed. And was it corporately received by the Jewish people? No, no, it didn't, it failed. So it failed on two points. It has to pass on all three. It was not scripture. All right, so you see how those work? Those three things. So you can maybe jot them down even in your Bible later on so you have them close. Someone comes to you with a challenge of the canon. You can say, what books are you concerned about? What books have you heard about? Tell me about them. Find out what category they're in and then talk. Okay, these three things, do they meet? If not, it's got to go. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, um, so that's when you look at the scriptures and you say, okay, is there a similarity of these books that we can see that are consistent with these books and you don't see those with other ones? So, for example, if we were to take the Old Testament, there's no debate among Jewish people about, say, the book Nehemiah, right? Everybody everywhere said, Nehemiah, the word of God. Then you look inside Nehemiah and you say, okay, does this match and flow with the rest of the scriptures? Or is it some really weird, off-on-its-own kind of stuff? And you realize, no, no, it, it flows really, really well. Right? There's continuity. The same people of God that went into exile are coming back from exile. The same people of God that had you know, the, the, the law, the Torah of God, are coming back with it. They're coming in repentance, wanting to live for God again and not, not do what led to that again. And, um, and, and, finally, and then who wrote it? the idea of the prophet or a close companion that and is passing down the similar teachings. So, so those three things, you see them when you analyze the books that are recognized of the 66. And when you take those three things and then you apply them to other ones that are not in it, you notice right away that they fail on one, two, or all three points. Um, last takeaway, thermostat and thermometer. What is the difference of the two? I, these two really sum up how biblical Christianity sees the canon and how the Catholic Church sees the canon. The Catholic Church will say that it created the canon of Scripture, that councils, that priests, that bishops, that popes decided it will be this gospel, it will be this book, and if you did not have the magisterium, the clergy, you would not have a Bible. You should be grateful that you have church authority or you would not even know what books you Protestants have as a Bible. Well, I, I hope as, as I demonstrated here, that's not true. Rather, the people of God recognized over the years which, God, which books God had given his people. And so think of a thermostat. A thermostat, it says what you want the temperature to be, right? You turn the dial on, on your wall and it creates something, right? It makes it the temperature 30 degrees or it cools the temperature down to 18. The thermostat controls, it creates, it causes. That is the Catholic view of the canon. The church did something. Now think of a, therm uh, a thermometer instead. A thermometer on your wall, it recognizes the temperature, right? It just says what it is. The thermometer recognizes the temperature that is there and it responds and reacts to the temperature in the room. It doesn't create the temperature, it reacts to it. This is the evangelical or biblical view of the canon. 
that God inspired the text. The, the apostles that wrote it knew what they were doing, like those, those verses we had looked up in the Bible. And the people that received it recognized what God was doing, that those words that were being written are the Word of God, inspired Word of God. So last, the last slide there, some resources for further study, which I'd really encourage you, um, if, if this is a topic you enjoy, grab those, put those on your bookshelf, go through them, highlight them. And uh, on the bottom left hand here, the Old Testament canon of the New Testament church by Roger Beckwith. It's, uh, it's a bit of a brick, it's, it's big like that, it's, but it's a good read. And, uh, and it analyzes the whole topic of the Old Testament canon. Bruce Metzger, the canon of the New Testament, he was interviewed by Lee Strobel in The Case for Christ. I, he, that man was a giant, I, uh, amazing, amazing guy. And Michael Kruger, photo of him here, two of his books, as well as uh, if you don't want to read the books, on the far right, he's got a DVD series as well, which uh, is really good. And Michael Kruger, is, uh, he's the Dean of Reformed Theological Seminary in uh, North Carolina. He's got a great blog that you see the top heading there, uh, Cannon Fodder. And he'll have these great articles that just talk about things like Gospel of Thomas and, uh, and just analyzing them from uh, uh, an evangelical scholar point of view. Right? So useful resources, uh, something worthwhile jotting down. I'm, I'm going to leave it there. And uh, I'm going to pray for you guys and encourage you to, to head next door and grab some, grab some food. And if anybody would like to ask any questions about the canon, oh my gosh, I'd love that. So I'm going to be hanging out here. Come, come find me, all right? So uh, if you bow your head with me, let's, uh, let's pray. We'll close there. Lord God, thank you for these saints gathered here, Lord. Thank you for the saints of Banff, of, of Canmore, of Lake Louise, uh, uh, visiting from Calgary, Lord, visiting from elsewhere in the world. Thank you for this church. Thank you, God, for the leadership of this church. God, please keep it safe. God, please uh, continue, Lord, to, uh, to empower your people here, Lord, to be uh, a strong family of great fellowship and a great witness, Lord, a great light to the Bull Valley here. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for giving us life with you. Thank you, God, for um, yeah, being our king. God, and Jesus, we love you, and in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so if, if you are visiting here, you like to attack a lot. It's actually, it's the canon of Scripture. And by that, they mean the books that are meant.